It's the bike show with me, Jack Thurston. Well, they say you should never meet your heroes. But in doing the bike show for all these years, I've had a chance to meet a good handful of my own heroes from the world of cycling. And I can honestly say I'm really glad that I did. Whether it's Eileen Sheridan, Mike Burrows, Alex Moulton or Graham O'Brien, They've never disappointed. I think there are some really lovely people who've done some amazing things in the world of cycling. And a few weeks ago, I got the chance to meet another one. She's the former professional bike racer who went on to transform the market for children's bikes. The bikes she's designed and that bear her name have given a generation of children the best possible start to a life of cycling. Unlike so many kids' bikes... They are lightweight, durable, practical and comfortable. Just what you need when you're learning to ride a bike. And testament to their quality is the way they hold their value on the second-hand market, as any parent who's scoured eBay hoping for a bargain will tell you. And I know I have. The bikes are, of course, Isla bikes, and the woman who designed them is Isla Roundtree. I made the trip to lovely Shropshire to pay her a visit at the headquarters of Isla Bikes, the company she founded 13 years ago. She gave me a tour of the premises and we talked about all kinds of things. Her early life on bikes, where the idea for Better Kids Bikes came from and how she got started in business. We talk about her business ethics and her deep thinking on environmental sustainability. We even got onto the subject of Brexit and the effect that that's having on the company. It's a long interview, but I think you'll enjoy it. And we began our conversation in the somewhat echoey acoustics of the Isla Bikes showroom. We're here on the Earl of Plymouth Estates, which is the large landowner on this side of Ludlow, and we rent this unit from them, and this is Isla Bikes. And so we're staring at a beautiful array of bicycles on the right-hand side, a childhood's worth of, of bikes there yes. that will take you from probably two or three? Two, yeah, two from the little balance bike at the far end and then up in increments year by year up until size before you're ready for an adult's bike. And there must be 15 bikes in that, in that, in that row? Yeah, good guess. It would be about 15. Yeah, and we've got, we've got the general usage bikes up to just over halfway and then we've got more specialist enthusiast bikes. We've got hardtail mountain bikes there and some cyclocross straight road bikes. And on the other side, we've got your new line, which is bikes for... It's bikes for elderly people. This is our new Icons range, which we launched only a couple of months ago. And... We are aiming that specifically to address some of the needs of the changing body as people age. And we know that the current generation of elderly people are quite different in that they really want to continue to do the things that they love. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't sit back. They, they keep going with their, their social activities and their cultural activities and their sporting activities. Um, but our bodies do change as they age and... Um, I've, I've addressed some of the, the needs of that particular group of people with this range. You're going to give us a little tour of the, yes. of the premises? Yes, upstairs. That's our team. She works here. So it's just... oh, we've got a nice board here with everybody's, yeah. everybody's smiling face looking yeah. out. Um, I, d- I don't need to look at that to know who works here, but it's a useful aid memoir when people are in their first couple of weeks. It's a lot of names to remember. So how many people... Work here? About 40, give or take, yeah. A little bit squashed up and congested because we have stockpiled for Brexit as a Brexit contingency um, against the possible eventuality that ports might get congested and that would interrupt our product flow in and out of here. Um, So that means we've got a lot more bikes in here than we would usually have and all of our offices are squashed into a smaller space to accommodate them. This is our customer services team. We have a consumer direct business model. That means that we design the bikes here. We get them made in Southeast Asia, as a lot of the bicycle industry does. And we bring them back here. And then our customers contact us directly, either via telephone or over the internet. And if they choose to place an order, we do the final assembly of the bike here and send it straight to their home. So our customer services team is uh, talking to and responding to emails from customers, chatting about their children, chatting about their needs, 
all day every day and, and hopefully solving, solving their problems and that's what's going on here. And over the little, we're a sort of mezzanine yeah. level um, under the roof, and out here it's just, yeah, I've here never seen see. so many bike boxes. Yeah. This is Brexit on bikes, is it? This is Brexit on bikes, and we had to take the decision to do this uh, back in September because we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, and here we are on the 29th of March, and we still don't know what's going to happen. So it may, it may have all been um, for nothing, but we don't really know yet. But it, it, yeah, at the time, it was a decision we took of risk management because, because of the nature of, of our business. This is all we do, and an interruption to flow through would have been... Uh, quite catastrophic. I mean, that is it. it, it there's not just a lot of them, but they're piled up three, three levels high of boxes, and they're five wide. And so, how many bi- how many boxes are here? In, in this bit here, I couldn't tell you of what we're looking at now, um, but there it's are a hundreds. lot more than what there's hundreds here, and, and this is only a tiny bit of it. Um, yeah, we've got another three units with boxes piled up in it, um, dotted around. Ludlow and elsewhere but this area here would normally be there would still be some stock but there would normally be rows of mechanics in this area here assembling bikes you just peep through there you can see that there are some there but the people that are usually in this area are assembling the stock from our one of our extra temporary units at the moment so So this is all this has all cost you money I mean because you've had to pay for these yeah so I mean in terms of paying for it that's cash flow which is huge but we've also had to rent additional premises or we've chosen to do that we haven't had to do it but we've chosen to do it as risk management we've had to negotiate leases on other premises in order to store it and then there's the operational costs of moving it around thinking about it working it all out so yeah it has cost us a lot of money do you have any idea of how that's going to affect your bottom line um if everything trading wise goes smoothly this year and we either needed our contingency or didn't, but it goes smoothly, then um, our, op- our, our operating profit at the end of the year will be much, much lower than it would have been because we've spent a whole load of money on stuff that doesn't really add any value to the customer just to manage, manage the situation we're in. And it may, to, you know, it may have proved to have been the wrong decision, but when you're months in advance and you have to take the decision because of the lead times... It was a, a risk management decision, and if you can afford to manage the risk, we felt that it was worth. And there must be all sorts enough. of currency issues that you're yep. kind of hedging all of that as well. Yeah, all of that as well. The, the, the exchange rates have actually been really quite stable throughout. I don't know what you described the last few months, but the exchange rates have been sta- relatively stable. And I think I think even the markets have tired of following all the ups and downs from day to day, and it's somewhere between what it will be if we if we leave and if we don't and the nature of the deal so i think i think we'll get to the actual after exchange rate once we know what's going to happen here we have our changing room slightly fusty today and shower we encourage people to walk or cycle to work and lift share if they're if they're going to drive and we've run for 10 years now a cycle to work scheme where we pay an amount in addition on the wages for every journey in and every journey out. So you tick a chart by the door when you come in on your bike, you tick a chart when you leave, you get £2 per journey, £4 a day, potentially £20 a week, and that just goes straight into your wages. So Wow, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Any other companies yeah. do that? Not to my knowledge. Yeah, we've done that for a long time. It's just a practical thing. And, and it's one of those things where you say, oh, that's really nice, that's really generous. And... Um, it is, but we also know that there's a direct correlation between people's physical health and their levels of activity, their alertness when they arrive at work, and their mental health. So I, I think it's actually commercially astute as well. Here's our workshop area. You can see each one of these is a workstation. And on a typical day, each one of these would have a person working in it. It's Friday afternoon. They haven't all snuck off home early. They're actually working, assembling in the other premises at the moment. So it's atypical today in terms of who's here. If you come and have a look at the workstations, we've got Rafe and Bex here. Hello. You can see that we've got a tool board laid out with what looks like a slightly miscellaneous array of tools, but that's actually... 
all the tools needed to assemble the bike and only the tools needed to assemble the bike and they're laid out in the position for the shortest hand movements needed for the job that they're there to do so this assembly process is highly skilled and it's also been very analysed over the years so we can make sure that there's a, a set routine that's done in the same way every time a bike's done that ensures that uh, nothing gets missed so yeah. when bikes arrive on the boat, mm-hmm. what, in what parts are they? And there's a whole bike in each one of these boxes as, as they've come in, um, but they're not, they're not quite finished, so they're all in there. But we check every nut and bolt, we adjust the gears, we adjust the brakes, we make sure that the point of contact of the brake levers is in the strongest part of the child's hand when the pads contact the limbs. Um, and we fit a range of accessories as well. So, uh, yeah. This is this is the engine room in the business really here. The same duplicated throughout. Then we've got our dispatch area here. Those ones are waiting to go with the careers today, and we'll be with children on Monday. What a lovely thought! Yeah. Oh, a lovely thought! Yeah. There, the, that's the uh, yeah, the ones with the labels on fourteen, which I think yeah, is what 14, yeah. my um. Sun is just getting a little bit too big for actually. Yeah. Um, um, but that that is the that is the first that's the first pedal bike. That, yes. Isn't it? Yeah, that's so right. That it's the kind of yeah, our knock range baptism it. of bicycling. That's right. Our knock range is the the learning to ride range, and we do actually do that in four sizes now because children are considerably different in physical size at the point that they're ready to learn to ride a bike. So we've got a bicycle for whatever physical size they are when they reach that time. <laughs> some more boxes yeah more bikes yes and we've also got all our spare parts here and we keep spare parts in stock for all of our bicycles and they're also backwards compatible for all the bicycles we've ever made so they're not necessarily exactly the same parts but they're the new ones will fit on on the old bikes and we're really keen to keep the bicycles in use for as long as possible we know that they get passed from family to family to family to family and children do fall off and saddles get scuffed and Brake levers occasionally get snapped, and we make sure that we've got all those bits in here. Because would would a local bike shop typically not stock the specific stuff for kids' bikes? Uh, they they may well do, and they would certainly have something that would fit. But we've designed a lot of our components to be ergonomically more suited to the to children at the age that the bike's intended for. So the, there are a lot of the parts, and you have a look here, in which we we've. we've these are all of our own designs and we've invested in moulds for them. So things like handlebars, brake levers in particular. You can see here we are, tiny, tiny brake levers, um, very, very slim grips. All of these get the child's hand close around the brake lever and make them easier to use. And they're all of our own our own designs. So, yeah, you, you could keep a bike of ours going with other parts, but it's not going to work in the way that it did when it was fitted with the original parts. So, um, that's what we might oh, look at these, the tiny little cranks. Yeah, yeah really dinky. <laughs> they, they look almost like um, sort of decorations for a Christmas tree or yeah. something, but they're yeah, so small. They could, couldn't they? Yeah, that's, that's for a four-year-old, typical average four-year-old's bike. So, yeah, really dinky. And, uh, we have quite a lot of people visit us on Saturdays, families that choose to come and, come and see us and have a go on bikes. So we've got this little test track here. If you're trying two or three bikes for size or you're not sure if you want a road bike or a mountain bike, you can come and have a, a little ride and we can assess the fit. Straw bales or is that clippings? For, they're, they're, uh, for... they're, they're straw bales, as you can see, have been there for a very long time. We, that crash protection? It is, but not for children. <laughs> on, on Christmas Eve every year, which is our, our last day, we, we trade and everybody works right up to Christmas because obviously it's really important for us as a business because a lot of bit children will get bicycles for Christmas. It's a high-ticket item, so it needs to be an occasion for buying it. And as part of our Christmas Eve celebrations, after we've all worked very hard and long hours for many weeks... We have knock racing, so we race the knock 16. We time trial around the building, which involves a lap of the building, a lap of the test track in a figure of eight. And then we come round here to the finish, and that's what the bales are for. <laughs> so. That must be quite a sight. Is yeah, that available yeah, on yeah. YouTube? Uh, uh, I don't know. It's very much a don't-do-this-at-home job. Because um, <laughs> that's, that's grown-ups yeah, on yeah, tiny on little kids' bikes, bike, and yeah. probably not the best for the, uh, for the little wheels. 
Yeah, we haven't broken one yet, but we, in fact, we've had the same racing not in the business for 10 years now. We've been doing it for 10 years ever since we've been in this building. And it's the original, we, there is one that we have that's, that is the racing knock. So it's, uh, and, yeah. You're running this amazing, successful business. You've been national champion in cyclocross multiple times. Where did it come from? Where, what was your entry into cycling? Did you grow up in a cycling family? What, what brought you to the bike? My first memory of bikes was my fourth birthday when I was given a bicycle by my parents and it was a second hand bike I think it was definitely a rally and I think it was a pixie and solid tyres step through frame and a rod front brake just the one brake and it was a second hand bike and my parents had bought it my dad had touched it up and I was absolutely thrilled and I loved it from the moment I rode it they had the good sense not to fit it with stabilisers from the outset and I was able to ride it straight away and my sister got that bike two years later for her fourth birthday, and I think was equally pleased with it. And I fell in love with it right there. My parents weren't cyclists at that time, in fact, didn't have bikes. They, they met through canoeing. They were both competitive slalom canoeists. And our childhood was... The highlights of our childhood were weekends away at events when we would camp all with our tiny caravan in a field somewhere near a river. And it was an outdoor adventure life right from the outset, um, but not particularly involving bicycles at that time. And then, But my father had ridden as a teenager with the Banbury Star Cycling Club and done a few time trials and club runs before we got into canoeing. And when I was around about nine or ten, my parents got together with my grandmother and possibly both sets of grandparents, and they scraped together enough money to buy my sister and myself little Peugeot dropped handlebar racing, yeah, racing bikes, uh, which was, and they were new, which was the most exciting thing. And we were already doing rides with my parents and my uncle as a family, like going for rides out into the countryside. So this was where? Where were you living? We were living in Hagley on the edge of the West Midlands conurbation. So we were um, right next to countryside, although we lived in a large village. And um, yes, we got the little racing bikes. And a couple of years later, when I was 12, my dad took me to a Wednesday evening time trial that the local cycling club was organising. And that was it from that moment. I just loved everything about it. I'd always loved the sensation of riding a bike, rode them loads, anywhere and everywhere, off-road, on-road. But for me, the whole racing scene and the club scene, just that became my thing within the family. And I um, then started going on club runs and everything, everything grew out of that. And did you... Was it immediately obvious that you were good? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it was probably quite slow at the start, but... Um, I think I'm naturally competitive and so I can remember thinking about how to get faster, wanting to get faster and I love the equipment as well right from right from the outset so that tinkering with bikes became a thing at that point. If I wasn't already doing it I probably was before even before on the old bike so in the garage at home messing with it. And and so this would have been in the 1980s? Yep that would be early 80s so that would be uh, yeah that first time trial was 1981 I think. It's quite common for people who cycle as teenagers to almost drop it when they, mm. when they become an adult. Mm. What happened to you? I don't think that was ever likely to happen with me. I, yeah, I loved it. I, I got my first job in a bike shop when I was 16 and I was working on Saturdays in school holidays and that, that eventually obviously turned into my career. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm aware that lots of people now do drop out of all kinds of sport in their teens and actually particularly girls but I don't know why I was different but it wouldn't have occurred to me and I certainly was never self-conscious about what I did even though it was considered odd at the time and it's really interesting now the friends that I was at school with I think yeah definitely did think my activity was a bit strange and maybe I probably did get a bit teased about it from times but that now cycling is so fashionable and occasionally meet up with them all they've all got nice bikes that they talk about it they're talking about gear ratios and chamois (laughs) it's like a full circle really 
and whilst there wasn't anything particularly for children, I had a great time, and it was. I look back on that era with a lot of affection. So, the the routine of the week was time trial on a Wednesday, club night on a Friday when you'd arrange what you're doing the weekend, a club run on a Sunday, and then the occasional youth hostelling weekend throughout the year. It was great fun, and we did do some of us did do rough stuff as well. So there was there was a faction, or within the within the cycling club that did what we called rough stuff then and we would on club runs we would sometimes sneak in the odd bridle way although not not to everybody's taste and on our youth hostling weekends away we would quite often do quite a bit of off-road on the same bike that we did everything else on of course well there's obviously the decade of um the mountain bike as well how did that affect you i would have been around about 17 i can remember I can remember the first Muddy Fox courier coming into the bike shop in which I worked and setting that up for a customer. And then a friend within the cycling club lent me a very early mountain bike. And I can remember taking it on my summer holidays. My family used to summer holiday near Harlick, which is on the sea, um, between the sea and the Rinog Mountains. So I took it, it was called a mountain bike, so I took it up the rhinogs to the top of the mountains my first lesson was ride among them rather than straight up them but, uh, yeah and, and that's that's how I started with it really and your racing career you're still racing now aren't you very rarely now I do occasionally but yeah social racing I call it now <laughs> looking back on that what are your some of your highlights and that's the most most memorable moments sort of things that left an impression on you well I actually spent a long time racing and uh, and when you get very committed to it which I was for quite a long time it absorbs a lot of your life it absorbs a lot of your headspace when you're not actually riding you're thinking about what you're eating and thinking about what social events you say yes to and say no to and your your time your life's very timetabled because you've got a program that you're doing but in terms of highlights, I've done so many now. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the racing blurs. I can't, there aren't standouts, and I can't quite remember when it was, or they get confused in my mind because doing it for twenty plus years, I can remember vividly my first mountain bike race, the Malvern Hills Classic, and um, and then the early cyclocrossing when there was no women's racing when I started and I uh, rode cyclocross. I turned up, I think, when I was about 19 to my first event at Wolverhampton, and I was put in with the what were called the juvenile boys then, so the 12- to 16-year-old boys. And wasn't too chuffed about that, but loved the cyclocross and spent a lot of years working with Keith and Joan Edwards and John Burney um, to get a women's cyclocross championship established. And they, they were really supportive with that, which we did in the next few years, um, a national championship. And then, and then spent many, many more years trying to persuade the UCI to put on a world championship, which they eventually did in 2000. It took nine years to get that done and uh, get that through. So that, 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 that was really memorable. And whilst I've raced all, all disciplines, all, almost all disciplines, I've road racing, track, grass track, cyclocross, mountain biking, downhill and cross country, because we did both in the early days, did one on a Saturday and the one other on a Sunday, all on the same bike. Cyclocross became my thing and probably the thing that I I think you like the thing you do well at. But I really like the sensation of riding uh, fast over rough ground. And cyclocross gave me the opportunity to maximise my strengths, which was, I think, physically I'm not like massively talented reasonably obviously reasonably reasonably well um endowed but um i could make make up the difference by really really thinking about the individual challenges of cyclocross because you go around the same course which is fairly short multiple times if you can work out where to save time on all the little bits on a lap and then multiply those up say you save one second eight times a lap which you can by thinking about it and then you do six laps do the maths we nearly got a minute there with for no physical effort so uh, so crafty racing yeah yeah so that that i really 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 got engaged with doing that and yeah i used to study corners and i watch how the international riders rode how they got on and off their bike and learned how to do it 
taught myself how to do it. And did you race over on the continent? Not loads, because there wasn't really a women's scene then, but it was just, we, we found out that, um, that the Dutch had quite a good national scene for women and they promote they, they were keen for us to go and race with them so we'd raced in holland in the late 90s a few times and then a, a circuit did develop in the late 90s and raced in belgium quite a lot which is just always fantastic really 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 enjoyed that and then uh, yeah and um i also did some mountain biking for a year with team rally when we raced raced in europe because there's a lot of talk about the gender pay gap in mm. professional bike racing and it said that Cyclocross is one of the disciplines where there's least of that. Is that is that right? Is uh, is that have you got any I explanation why that might be? Or in or certainly over in in Belgium. Uh, yes, there's been some really good behind the scenes work done, particularly by Helen Wyman, um, but but other other women as well, um, in working with the with the governing bodies to try and address that, and they have made some really good progress. It's not gone. But, but really, really good progress, and there's plenty of races now where there's equal pay. But there's, the big financial part of cyclocross racing is actually appearance money, or contract money as it's called. So for most of the big races uh, on the continent, the, the good riders are paid to race. So they have a contract to turn up and race, and that's where the, that's where the money is. That's how they earn their living. And obviously that, if, there's a, if there's a pay gap there, and I'm not versed on the latest detail of the contracts but I suspect the women aren't getting the same contracts as the men but certainly there's been good progress there. Where are you working? You're not fully a professional no, I, I, so, I, as a racer. No I, I worked um, making trailer bikes for children in the first half of my 20s which is the one wheel cycle trailers which we manu- I manufactured um, with my partner right from scratch so I learned how to frame build and worked, learnt about, a bit about business through that time. And then I went and raced full-time for rally for two years at the end of my 20s. And then when, I've, when they, they reduced their team, they actually took the women out of their team at that point, um, the three of us, uh, I found myself pretty unemployable. <laughs> very, very odd CV, <laughs> minimum wage stuff. I managed to get a job as a van sales rep in the West Midlands for a very long established wholesaler where I drove a van round all the bike shops with bits in it that they would buy on a regular circuit. I did that for a year or two and then I just kind of realised that I needed to do some, get a bit more serious about work and things and my sister said, Isla, you need to go and work for a big corporate. She said, you won't like it but you need to go and do it and you, you, you didn't complete your degree, which I didn't, I only did a couple of terms. And it, treat it as your degree and go and do it. And Halford's headquarters was about 25 miles from where I lived at the time. And so I applied for the first job that came up there, really, and at their headquarters. And worked for Halford's for three or four years. And in spite of everybody's predictions, I really enjoyed it and did quite well there. And I learned so much. Halford's are not liked within the cycling enthusiasts for their, for their products, but it, their head office was a really good place to work at that time. And it was also a time where it went through changes of ownership. It was owned by Ward White, which was the Boots Group. Quite benign, old-school retail when I first went there. And then they were taken over by venture capitalists, and they sort of puffed it up and then floated it on the stock exchange as a PLC. So I went through that whole several stages of that company while I was there, and that was terrific education i knew nothing about that stuff all right so you got yourself an mba on the side uh, yeah in, in practical terms really yes yeah 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 and that was great and it was um from there that i i then left there to set up isla bikes so where did the idea come from for isla bikes it's really simple obviously i've been immersed in bicycles in the bike industry for a long time and all my adult working life but i don't have children it's 13 years ago now since I was Isla Bike started trading and my sister had started a family and she had got little ones and a couple of close friends. And you must get this all the time. You're the cycling expert in your circle of friends and acquaintances. And so when it, the people that aren't keen cyclists, when they want to ask a bike-related question, come to you and I get the same thing. And they were asking me what to get for their children. And I just I was just really disappointed with what was available even from the good brands that make really great adult bikes their children's bikes were really disappointing so typically incredibly heavy heavier than my adult's bike four-year-old's bike 
um, and ergonomically really ill thought out were not really thought about so very very long cranks for the size of the bike at the time brake levers out of reach springs so strong that I couldn't pull them on never mind a child and quite often a lot of them were covered in what I would call licensing junk so Barbie or Bob the Builder and also quite a lot and this comes from the mountain bike thing uh, aping the look of an adult mountain bike but with none of the performance benefits so enormous knobbly tyres faux suspension that added two kilos but no functional benefit triple chain sets with multiple gears how's a six-year-old going to work out what to do with that lot and yeah so at a at, at a low point for the industry and if you look at the children's bikes that were made in the 50s 60s they were all right 70s okay the chopper came in and i know we have an affection for that but functionally it wasn't a great bike. terrible bike i yeah. remember my rally commando yeah. that's yeah. a horrible, horrible bike. bike yeah so it's probably started that was its first sort of bad patch was the 70s and then although everyone um, seemed to want a grifter yeah i'm not quite sure what, what was yeah, grifter. And, and sim yeah yeah i can remember the grifter slightly slightly more functional than than a chopper but um so why were they so bad? I think because they were trying to copy the look of adult mountain bikes, which had boomed through the 90s and were really fashionable, had been really fashionable. There was a massive boom. The mountain bike did wonders for cycling and the cycle industry. But copying the visual aspects of it, but without thinking of the functionality for a child and the actual rider and what they were going to do on it. And where that led me was, if you're an evangelist about something, you want the people that you love to like it too you want to share this thing that enhances your life and for me I, particularly I think not having my own children the children are my nearest and dearest I thought oh they're going to hate cycling if they have to ride these things they might not want to do it at all and that was the spark really and from there I thought well this if this is all that's available for children now my first bike was good what was good when I was four that one I mentioned but these aren't they're awful then it's going to put lots of children off cycling and I could see the way to make it better I, I felt as a, ergonomically I'd made all sorts of modifications to my own bikes over the years things like crank lengths and brake levers I'm a confident cyclist but you you can't ride confidently when you can't reach the brakes if you don't know you can stop so can you imagine learning to ride and not thinking you can stop it's not this just a really bad start so that's really that was the spark and I thought I know I know how to do this I I could see what the solutions were technically to make the bikes much better for children to give children a better cycling experience in the hope that they'd love it and that's where where I started and really that's still what we do now is that's what our business vision is is to give a better cycling experience. so what did you do practically did you get out the brazing torch and no or or what, what, what was the what was the step from thinking I can do better than this to look at me. I'm actually doing better doing than this. It. Yeah, well, I made the decision. Um, I'd been at Halfords for a while. I liked the job, but I was, I was getting uneasy. We would now a PLC, and I was uneasy with what we were being asked to do and particularly how we were being asked to trade with our suppliers. So take them from 30 days on to 60 days on to 90 days, bash them around for margins starting to sort of throw our weight around as a big organization and it didn't sit comfortably with me and that that was my job to do that I was being praised for doing this stuff and I could stay there and I'd start to think that it was okay when it when I hadn't started out thinking it was okay and I sort of knew I had a decision to make that I could stay there and accept it and that that's the way of the world and I think we like to think that our morals are really set and I actually think they're far more flexible than we would like to admit to ourselves and I think if you're being in an environment where you're being praised for something that you started out thinking was bad you can pretty quickly start thinking it's good and I knew that and I knew that I, I could I, I, I might crumble and so I'd started to think that I, I needed to move on and it was on my radar but I hadn't had the idea and then I had the idea so it was a fairly quick process mentally then for me to decide I'm going to go for this so I handed in my notice I didn't do any work on the new business until I'd worked my notice and actually left um, obviously that would have been um, in contravention of my contract um, but once I'd left then I just I had a business to start and I wrote a business plan it's on a shelf up there somewhere on a few A4 sheets of paper and um, I had to design a range of bikes, find a supplier, agree terms, get samples, find a premises. Um, it was a cow shed, an ex-cow shed. We started trading from, and 
build a website, get a visual identity. The idea of selling direct mm-hmm. was not totally new, but pretty new. Um, yeah. Were there? I mean, in, I'm just thinking in the bike industry, who was doing that? I guess at, at that time it was considered a, a disruptive business model. Yeah. Would you I mean, there's Planet X, I suppose, yeah, were the yeah, kind of the big two, ones. Yeah, but as a brand doing and it. And Rafa were were they before you or after you? Because that was their model, wasn't it? Yes. Sell direct. Um, still yeah, is. Yes. Yeah. Um, although obviously not a bicycle for a bicycle brand, Canyon would have been around then. Yeah, as a standalone brand, it was it was yeah it was considered disruptive at the time. And sort of realizing the potential of the new technologies of the web and e-commerce, yeah. and it was, it, was it was it difficult to get the relationships built up with the the, the manufacturers, or are they happy to work with anyone um, who will pay? Um, in terms of the manufacturing, uh, yeah, they they they're not bothered about how you distribute. They want to work with a, a good customer that pays the right money for the bike you know after that it's up to you how you how you distribute it there's no no barriers or there were no barriers from the manufacturing end that I knew about at that time but the the reasons for going down this route were it was it was just much more practical at the time the next priced four-year-old bike or the most the highest priced four-year-old bike in the market at the time would have cost about 50 pounds a bicycle for a four-year-old top top of the range we launched our range with our four-year-old bike at £100 then. So it was double the next thing in the marketplace. So it was a big step change. And if I was going to distribute through bike shops at that time, I would have had to have travelled the country convincing bike shops to buy this bike. Well, not just one bike, the range of bikes for it to have the impact. Um, and... That would have been a, a big, und- it would have been hard work to convince bike shop owners at that time to do that. Some of them may have done, but the people that I told what I was going to do at the time all thought I was mad. Um, so I was convinced, but nobody else was really. Um, so I think it would have been, that would have been a hard sell. And they probably wouldn't have taken all the range. And realistically, if some of them had felt sorry for me, they might have taken two models and stuffed them in a dusty corner at the back. So that would have been how I'd have had to get... That would have just been impossible with very little resource. And the other thing was is that bike shops would have expected credit terms for payment and I'd scraped together very little money in order to start the business. I was doing initially on a shoestring. So what, um, had so you got a loan or had you got investors? I saved, saved up a bit of money and I had a loan from my mum. So yeah, real it. bootstrap stuff. Real bootstrap stuff. And I did lose a lot of weight in that first six months before we actually sold anything while well, I was setting it up because, yeah, we, my partner and I were living off £10 a week housekeeping at the time. It was feeding two of us for that. It was a long time ago, but we fed two of us. So it was a shoestring operation at home as well. And was it a shock for people to see these bikes that are £100 that they're accustomed to seeing a bike for, or we, maybe we shouldn't call it a bike a bicycle shaped object I think is the yeah. technical term for 50 quid in yeah. uh, you know the children's section of Halfords or whatever or department store yeah. or Toys R Us or, or were people just thinking thank god someone's done it I think yeah and I think that the the scale of it was really small then and I knew that I couldn't put the bicycles in front of everybody immediately because I didn't have the resources to do that I decided instead to target enthusiast cyclists so people for whom cycling's a sport not because that was our end goal but because I could communicate with them without spending much marketing money I mean I couldn't place an advert in the Guardian for instance but I could get some journalists to do some editorial in some cycling magazines for nothing because they were interested in it so if i if 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 i could get something in some cycling magazines the enthusiasts would read that some of them might be interested for their children but they would be the opinion leaders for their circle of friends just as we talked about earlier who might not be enthusiast cyclists but would want bicycles for their children so just like my sister had come to me and my friends had come to me their friends would go to them and i thought if they knew about us then they might say this is really good brand that makes proper quality bikes for children and that's really what happened and then um, eventually we, you know, we managed to communicate and sell bikes to lots of families for whom cycling isn't part of their, their, their main part of their life and their identity it's it's one of the things that they do 
to get to school on or to enjoy family leisure time together but they do lots of other things as well. How has the business grown from those days very early days in into where you are now and was that was that a kind of na- just a steady growth or were there kind of steps that you had to kind of leap no, over it, it, it was steady um and how did it grow it just felt like hanging on for, <laughs> for dear life at times it once it got going we had big annual growth year after year for a long time if you start with something that's tiny and it's going to turn into anything that's medium size you're going to get a steep bit where it really grows fast so it was um very exciting hard work um and psychologically really challenging because we were we were continually working out how to do things better in order to keep up with the orders with the resources we got you can't just take on more staff because you've got orders when the job to assemble them skilled you can't turn it on overnight so you have to apply your your mind in exactly the same way as I did for cyclocross and it was the same process and remember British Cycling was was starting out on its was underway with its huge success in terms of um, elite sport and Olympic sport at that time and so we took a lot of inspiration from them as well with their marginal gains theory and we applied that to all of our operational processes so whether it was assembling the bike I showed you the tool boards and all that was driven by that growth period so it created this pressure which made us think in a way that I think was provided the foundation for the business in terms of it being commercially efficient or effective because we've 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 set that that sporting way of thinking of aiming for perfection um and looking at all the different ways that you can uh, achieve that all the different ways that you can contribute to that it's always out of reach but that perfection in how you do everything so it's made that our systems and processes we have just because we had to very very rigorous sounds quite obsessional yeah are you obsessional Um, i think i kind of feel like you are i I feel like i think we i think we're all much more complex than than we we have other other sides to our personalities which I'm, i'm quite yin and yang um i think that i'm really normal and that this is the normal way to be but you're welcome to go and have a chat to some of my colleagues <laughs> and, then, and I'll go out of earshot that yeah I think it was the, the moment when you said oh look if you can get one second on each on this yeah, corner yeah. six well, we, times yeah. And, yeah. and that and and we went we went through a period where that's how we looked at assembling the bikes you know I was doing it myself and and, and we were in a smaller team then and most of those people were also racing cyclists and so it was probably a uh, yeah, a, a, an environment that encouraged that sort of trait in one. Yeah, obsession, and it is. Yeah, but. you've also got, as I understand, a strong kind of moral sense of a, wanting to do things right. Can you talk a bit about that? Where that comes from, and how you how you do it here, and, and the kind of things you'd like to do in the future. I spent quite a lot of time in my thirties, actually a bit earlier than that reading up about I, I've got an interest in industrial history and where, where I worked in my in my 20s was where in the West Midlands which was, is known as the Black Country which is where the Industrial Revolution really boomed it started in Ironbridge and then it exploded there and so surrounded by industrial history and that prompted me to read quite a bit about it which actually led me to learning about the 19th century enlightened entrepreneurs um, and they were non-conformists that couldn't go into um, certain professions at the time because they weren't allowed to because they weren't Church of England. And so they tended to set up businesses. And a few of those were very successful and going to really big businesses. I'm a Roundtree, although very distantly related to Roundtrees, but they're an example in York and Cabris. There's also um, Titus Salt, who set up Salt Air, Huntley and Palmer, and the Lever Brothers... And in reading about those, I grew really interested in the, their philanthropy and how they integrated that with their businesses. I found that really inspiring. And actually, as a result of that and various other things, I, I became a Quaker eventually. So I think that probably underpins some of my business values. And 
and it's easy to say that it's not it's, it's not about making money I, I actually think that business gets a bit of a bad rap in the making money thing um, the majority of businesses anywhere I think are, are small or medium and the majority of them in terms of numbers are owned by founder entrepreneurs set up by them some of those get picked up by private equity and go turn into big businesses and i think the the environment then changes but i would say that the majority of businesses that are set up by founder entrepreneurs and are are not set up with the primary aim of making money i would say that nearly all of them are because the person that started them is passionate about something in my case it was passionate about bicycles but they might be passionate about baking bread or about jewellery or whatever it is and if you do it well and you're half commercially astute you'll probably make a success of it and you might make some money at some point as well but it's not the driver but having said that returning to the values thing I think if you do if you've got a long view you're not not looking for immediate returns the example of the cycle to work thing is if you if you do the right thing it's often commercially the best thing anyway so i i think i think you don't necessarily need to be too fluffy about it there is there is a commercial benefit in the long run things like with our suppliers we we pay all of our suppliers pretty much immediately just allowing for the paperwork to go through but seven days or so of getting the invoice when we do a run each week and you could say well that's really nice and that's generous but you get better trading terms from that you're in a much stronger negotiating position when you need to favor you're nearer the front of the queue with their other customers so you get a you get a benefit for it so i just think try if you try and do things the nice way but you can't be a pushover either but that that commercially in the long run it it, it pays off anyway you're also in a business that is part of consumer capitalism like yeah. it or not bicycles yeah. are a consumer Absolutely, capitalist yeah. product one of the, one of the classic yeah. manufactured products and look where we are now with manufacturing i mean it's all happening out of sight now in china and just yeah. arrives in boxes and yeah, yeah. courier vans yeah, and yeah. whatnot this one's just pulled up here but there is a tremendous amount of use of the world's resources going on in yeah. out in china and it's all to make our little gadgets and gizmos and things and yeah. i mean if you care about sort of treading lightly on the earth we're not treading very lightly are no, we absolutely not and i th- i think it's a, it's a huge subject i'm a passionate environmentalist um, but i'm also responsible for a group of people here and you do get you know you do get some really challenging moral dilemmas um, as a result of that. I think we've really lost our way in terms of how we use things, we call them consumer products if you want, as a society in the last... really, really lost our way in the last 40 years. The Industrial Revolution started a long, long way before that, and it was a long road to it and it was like we reached a tipping point where we've just lost our minds internationally as a society and completely changed the way we think and the way we do things and we've become this throwaway society where we're just using up natural resources to make stuff sometimes to use for less than five minutes and then throw it away and it's this enormous chain to get it to that point and then we use it a coffee cup's a perfect example and when I think back I was probably my childhood was just on the tail end of things. We'd, we we were on that road, but we still left our milk bottles out and had them refilled. You know, we we still went to the greengrocers and got stuff in paper bags. We still had Corona physical, and my sister and I would beach comb and pick them up out of the the, the driftwood. This and is take the, them this back is I remember shop. it well, but yeah, for the listeners, yeah, this is um this is the soft. Pan. Ten p yeah, soft drink kind of litre or yeah, litre glass bottle of lemonade or orangeade that if you took back to your local grocers you got ten p back. I just had for. a very strange. Do you remember those bumps? Yes, on the side of it, or the little on pimples. I had exactly the same I thing. Just, I just had this kind of know, sensory. I was having exactly flashback. the same thing at the time. Yeah, exactly the same thing, and and so we were until very recently 
doing a lot of it so much better and then and and you know my mum had a shopping bag that was reusable because that's what you did and we all did it and we as I say I think we've just completely lost our mind in the last 40 years do you have any idea why um I think it's very complex but one of the one of the reasons is that the price of the materials that go into making things doesn't reflect its real value doesn't reflect the cost to um, earth and its society so we wouldn't have thrown away things then that we throw away now because they cost too much to throw away they cost too much to make so things like plastic containers that we have our you know we bring our salad home in or whatever it would have cost too much to make to only use once and to throw away like that Um, is that because um, the price of something doesn't include its post-use cost on society or is it that that, that that things are being extracted too cheaply somehow well i think i I think i think there's a there's a big mismatch isn't there between where things are done in the world and wages and our ability to move stuff around so that creates this situation but also the thing you mentioned is what's known as the externalities so it's the, the manufacturer taking responsible for the costs not just before the thing gets to them but afterwards um, which is a, which is a separate separate topic but yes that's that's the huge one and the cost of disposal isn't in the price you know somebody else's problem actually it's our problem it's all of our problem and it's going to be very soon one thing you never see in a skip down at the recycling center in Abergavenny is an isla bike mm-hmm. you see a lot of other bicycles but mm. you never see an isla bike mm. um i mean that that must be a good feeling it's great yeah and there's definitely that it's got a perceived value even when it's used and as you said the second hand price of the bikes reflects that and that's why they don't end up in a skip because because you can get not much less than what you paid new for it so why would you throw it away which isn't the case with a lot of other children's bikes so yeah that's absolutely brilliant and they get used and used and used and used and we try and support that our business model is still linear in terms of material use so a linear linear supply chain in terms of materials when you take stuff out the ground you make it into something you use it and when it's at the end of its usable life it goes back into the ground and that's ours that's what we do here but the bit that is used is much longer than than other children's bikes so that's good but it's not good enough and it's it, it won't solve won't solve the problems in the future it's just kicking the can down the road a bit further really so what we are um, experimenting with, and we've actually been working on for about three years now, is a circular or closed-loop material flow, which we're calling our Imagine Project. It's not on this site here, it's on our other premises down the road. And this is taking the circular economy principle and attempting to apply it to bicycles. Now the principle is that you make the bicycle out of non-virgin raw materials so you don't take them out of the ground they're materials that have been used for something else first and you make it to last as long as possible so you design in longevity and you design it so that at the end of its life all those materials are easily separable so that they can be reused again either to make another bike or to to go into another industry to make another product so the material is circulating ideally infinitely within the system while we're using the products but the key to make that work commercially is that whereas with our current consumer products we sell them to the customer you you don't do that you rent them to the customer so the customer rents the use of a bicycle and what that does is it completely change, it changes the design incentive for the manufacturer because we retain the ownership of that bike, so we retain responsibility for those precious materials that have made it. And it also incentivizes us for it to design it to last a really, really, really long time because we can rent it many, many more times to the user um, and commercially that makes it more successful for us. So at the moment... Even if it's not consciously done, um, we are actually incentivised for products not to last too long and to fail so that you come back and buy another. If, if, if you design products to last forever and sell them, then eventually you don't have a business because everybody's got one. 
and they last forever. So it's a, it's a completely different um, commercial incentive, which the service model does. And it also means it also incentivizes the user to give it back when they stop using it. And even with our current bikes, um, with their high resale value, I know that there's lots sitting in sheds that have been grown out of that we haven't quite got round to selling yet. I can think of family friends where the son is taller than me now. I know for a fact the learner bike's still in the shed. And that's a bike that could be being used by a child. Those raw materials in that bike could be being used by a child. They know that they can sell it for lots of money when they finally get round to it, but they don't need the money this week or this month today. So they don't ever quite... We're all busy, aren't we? We're all like that. We don't get round to it. If you're renting it, you're paying for it monthly. You get it back, don't you? You should see my bike shed. I think yeah. I need this yeah. rental well, you model. See mine. I mean, I, I can say all this stuff, but yeah, don't come and look at my own life too closely. <laughs> so, how do you think um, customers are going to react to this model? Because it's quite different, isn't it? You mentioned earlier that bicycle is this sort of big ticket item often comes around about Christmas or a birthday um, and it does feel like turning it into a kind of a rented product that is then recycled it's, it's quite a challenge for people in terms of thinking about anything let alone thinking about a bicycle yeah and and um, we we need to have a, a shift of our relationship with the things that we use in order for models like this to become the accepted norm I think eventually down the line the pressure of what we've done to the earth on which we live will force us down that route because you'll either have to rent one or there won't be one at all because we'll have used up all the alternatives but there is what I call the um, consumer rush that we get when we buy something so we we get a yeah a sense of excitement when we have that new shiny thing I've really thought about this particularly because of the Imagine Project because the challenge everyone comes back with is well a child's not going to want to buy it that another child's had and I think well I was really pleased when I was four with my bike that probably several other ha- children had had. And my sister was really pleased when she got the same bike that had been around in her home for two years for her fourth birthday two years later. So we can be pleased with something that's been used before because actually once you're riding it, as long as it works perfectly, you're getting the experience that the thing's for. So I believe children are quite capable of enjoying that but we need to understand how we get to that place where that feels okay again so that consumer rush thing which is about the purchase I've been thinking about this and I can remember when I was growing up as a family if we were going to buy a high ticket item we weren't we weren't that well off we were fine we were fed and we were looked after really well but we didn't have a lot of excess cash so if we were buying something it was quite a major event for the family so we might all get on the train and go into our local town and we'd all go and look at the something and we'd perhaps choose it, whoever it was for, it might have been a family item. And then we'd all go home again and then we'd save up for the thing that we'd decided we were going to get, which might be weeks or months. And then as we got to the date when we were... It would get, you get excited because it's in two weeks we're going, to be, we're going to be able to go and get whatever it is and then you'd all traipse off again and you'd get the thing and you'd bring it home and it'd be a, a, an occasion and I can remember a couple of these and the feeling of the new thing in the home would also last for several weeks or months so end to end that whole process that consumer rush was quite big and depending on what it was you know, varying length and we've shortened that period of time down and down and down. We have just got, a lot of us have got, not everybody, I totally understand that that's not the case for everybody, but the majority of us have got much more disposable income now than we had then in families. And so we do have more things and more stuff, and we tend to have more new things. And that buying cycle has been shortened, credit, replace the saving up in a lot of cases Um, we buy things more frequently um, but also we buy things online and I've experienced this you know it's really easy to go online decide to buy something you know press buy now on Amazon or whatever and it turns up the next day and that that thing that I've just described that lasted several weeks might last a day and a half before it's turned up you know and you've unpacked it and you've got all that packaging and you know all the rest of it 
And I think it's a bit like eating too much chocolate cake. Like the first slice is fantastic, but you just keep doing it more and more and more, and then you feel sick. And I think we, because of society, we are actually starting to to lose the thrill because we've overdone it. You, you um, see that happening to you? I, 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 I feel that. I'm talking about me personally. But I see indicators of what might be coming down the line. Um, I see young professionals in cities not wanting to own a car. That was a big status symbol of success where I grew up. Not one I've ever subscribed to, but it was. Um, it's an indicator of success, if you like. They don't. That's not for them because it's useless in a city. I've noticed within fashion a return to the look of, not necessarily the way they're made, but more tailored, longer-lasting clothes. So there's been the tweed thing over the last few years, um, tailored jackets, it's the sort of thing that you buy and last for lots of proper shoes, um, proper shoes that are very expensive and sold sold in... Um, shoe shops that are made to look distressed and old like they're already 10 years old they're not so it's not the actual real thing but the look of something that's been worn and loved and i see these as indicators i guess music would be music. the obvious example yeah. with streaming, streaming now having completely replaced yeah. Yeah, going down to get the latest Absolutely. bob dylan lp or whatever people yeah. used to save up for weeks for yeah <laughs> yeah in the 60s when it was the you know that the record was a real thing cds oh. are a bit crap weren't yeah, they yeah anyway. but buying a record a nice I still do that. I still play vinyl and do all that stuff. So, and go and buy, <laughs> treat myself to a record on a Saturday occasionally. But um, yeah, think so, about the vinyl and the resources. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got forty years use out of some of them. So, um, but that, it's that that those are, I see as indicators of how how we're changing. And what we're looking at doing with the bikes is for children specifically is replacing that new bike rush at Christmas or on your birthday thing with something different we still don't quite know how this is going to look but if you imagine you're a nine year old girl and you've had your rental bike delivered and it comes with a booklet or a virtual booklet of all the previous owners and what they did on it, the adventures that they had. Um, and maybe you look back through it and that you discover 10 years ago or 15 years ago that Laura Trott had this bike. And she was, you know, she's an Olympic gold medalist now. That would just be absolutely amazing. And you could actually get to a scenario where the older bikes with the bigger books with more stories in have more value than the newer ones. So it's thinking like that, really, to replace, to replace the short-lived new thing rush with something more meaningful and more lasting and just as exciting, more exciting. A bit more of a relationship yeah. with the history yeah. of something rather than just seeing it yeah. as a disposable exactly, object. Exactly that, exactly that. I'm really heartened by the, the climate strikes that our children have been going on in the last couple of months and there was one in, in Hereford which is one of our nearest towns um, a couple of weeks ago and whilst it's incredibly distressing that we're having our children are having to tell us what to do and just to, to take responsibility for their futures and there's a you know terribly sad message in that um, for us as, a, as an adult society it's also really heartening that they're just how well informed they are. I went and met some of them at our local march, was talking to them, asking them questions, listening to what they had to say, and they are really well informed. They're also terrified. You could genuinely sense the fear from some of them. But if they're thinking like that now, and they're organising themselves as they are, and they are organising themselves, they're not being incited to do it. I very much got the impression it come from them. Um, then I think renting a bicycle is not going to be a challenge for them at all i think they'll be they'll be the first people to embrace it i was in conversation with isla roundtree founder and owner of isla bikes and we did talk a little about her new icons range of bikes for older people but the audio quality is a little less than good as there was a man strimming the grass right outside the showroom it's ever thus when you're making a podcast however 
I will post that section of the interview as an audio clip on the Bike Show website as these new bikes are really interesting. They really do offer a viable alternative to the electric assist bike for people who are getting on in years but want to keep riding. Well, thanks for listening and keeping with the bike show. As ever, please do spread the word about the podcast. There's a lot of podcasts out there these days and um, sometimes I feel as though the bike show gets lost in the crowd. So you can like it on iTunes or even better leave a review or just tell someone you know who you think might like it. If you're a long-time listener, you will know that there is a big back catalogue of episodes going all the way back to 2004, amazingly. And I know episodes of the podcast have been few and far between these last few years, but I still really love making the podcast. And if you, the people who listen, are hanging in there, well, I'm hopeful that somehow we can get it onto a more regular schedule before too long. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying the first days of summer. I know I am. Goodbye.